Thank you for listening to Case Confirmed. On this episode, we're lucky to have Dr. Aisha Akhtar as our guest. Dr. Aisha Akhtar is a double board certified neurologist and preventative medicine public health specialist. A United States veteran, she previously served as deputy director of the United States Army Traumatic Brain Injury Program, developing the Army's brain injury prevention and treatment strategies for soldiers. As a commander in the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps, Dr. Akhtar frequently deployed to assist with national public health emergencies. For a decade, she was a medical officer at the Food and Drug Administration, most recently in the Office of Counterterrorism and Emerging Threats, implementing studies on vaccine effectiveness and safety. She's also the president and CEO of the Center for Contemporary Sciences, which is catalyzing the replacement of unreliable animal testing methods with more effective human-specific research techniques. So I'm excited to have you here and to talk about your very, very important organization, the Center for Contemporary Sciences. Excited to learn about this nonprofit and how you plan to advance research to be more human-specific. Thank you. Yeah, so how did you come to a place where you felt like this organization was important and necessary? Sure. Um, well, it's it's actually many years <laughs> in the process. Um, so I was um, I worked for ten years at the Food and Drug Administration, and while there, as a neurologist, while there, I saw so many drugs come through the pipeline to just fail again and again. And then I um, moved on to the Army to work as their deputy director of their their traumatic brain injury program. And it struck me how we really have nothing really to treat traumatic brain injury in soldiers. And there's been so many experiments done in animals and yet nothing's really proven effective for soldiers. All we have is supportive care for the most part that we can offer. And so with those two issues and also with personal experience with my own father who has suffered from immense pain from time to time, this, um, from his diabetes that causes a very specific type of neurological pain and not having any really good treatment for that pain. I've seen that there is a real need for changing how biomedical research is conducted. And so it's been many years of just seeing these failures after failures and my inability to help patients with severe neurological and other diseases that's led me to this point. And I was, I was very lucky. I was, I, I kind of met the founder, Nathan Herschler, who he's a, he's a lawyer. And so we ended up actually kind of meeting and it, um, he, a three day workshop at Harvard Law School a year ago, a year and a half ago, actually. And uh, that workshop was attended by scientists, doctors like myself, uh, business leaders, um, nonprofit leaders and, and other leaders as well to really think about what, what can we do to improve the science in biomedical research. And from that three-day workshop at Harvard Law School, Center for Contemporary Sciences emerged. Wow, that's great. That's very, very interesting. So is there any specific medication or any specific story that comes to mind to kind of illustrate the ways in which the science of testing, you know, pharmaceuticals on non-human animals is really inaccurate? Yeah, I think the best thing actually is not just a story, but a, a very clear statistic. I mean, about 15, it was in 2004, actually, 
the Food and Drug Administration had um, published some statistics that showed that 92% of the drugs that passed the preclinical stage, and by preclinical, we're talking about animal tests, as well as some traditional in vitro tests, but 92% of the drugs that pass that stage end up failing when they're tried in humans in the clinical trial stage. So you think about that, what that really means is about 92% of the drugs that are found safe and effective in animals end up being unsafe or ineffective in humans. The majority of them fail because they end up being ineffective in humans. So that's a huge, huge failure rate. Yeah. You think about that, right? You think about that. If a pi- if you were to hop on a plane and a pilot said, <laughs> all right, everyone, we have less than 10% chance or 8% chance of landing safely at our destination, you know, we'd hop right back off. I would not want to be on that plane. Let's just say not that. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a huge, huge failure rate. And so, and, and it's widely acknowledged as a huge failure rate. And so since 2004, there's been all kinds of calls from people saying, oh, we need to improve the animal models. We need to improve them. Well, here we're at 2020, billions of dollars invested in trying to improve, so-called improve the animal models. And yet we still have that failure rate. The failure rates anywhere between 90 to 96%, depending on the disease that you're looking at. So we have improved. Yeah, we haven't improved whatsoever. And it really comes down to the fact that, as you said, ultimately, you just cannot get around the, you know, the the fact that a rat is a rat, a mouse is a mouse, a dog is a dog, a monkey is a monkey, and a human is a human. Right. And yet, yeah, there are similarities in our um, biology. No doubt there are similarities, but it's the differences that are causing the problems. Right. So what are the alternatives that you propose and how do we begin to implement them and what are the barriers to implementing them? Yeah. So um, this is Center for Contemporary Sciences. What we're trying to do is catalyze these new technologies that will replace animal testing. And what's important about these new testing methods is that they are based on human biology. And so we're talking about testing methods like human on a chip. I'm, I'm sure many people have heard about lung on a chip, liver on a chip. Um, that's one type of technology. Um, there have been many different types of organs on a chip um, that have been created by many different innovators. The goal then is the next phase is to create a nervous system, um, you know, a circulatory system and um, lymphatic system, for example, and connect these organs to create the human body on a chip. Um, and so that gives you a much better idea of what's happening in vivo in humans. There's also small organs that are grown in the lab. Mm-hmm. Like there's a mini human brain grown in the lab. These are called organelles. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are other types of testing methods that are being developed. 3D printing is allowing for the growth of these new organs in the lab. These are just some of the technologies that are being developed. And it's really key to note that these testing methods are not by any means perfect. They're not, they're not perfect. They need refinement. They need improvement. But the, the thing about them is that you can continue to improve these methods. Unlike a rat, what can you, other short, short of turning a rat into a human, <laughs> yeah. you cannot improve a rat. I mean, you cannot make it more human. People have tried, they've, um, with mice, for example, you have genetically engineered mice, but 
decades of using genetically engineered mice haven't haven't really resulted in any real human benefit either. So that's failing. And the reason why is because if you insert a human gene into a mouse, it's still in the mouse. So it's still affected by the mouse's physiology, by genetic expression that's unique to that mouse, for example. So, you know, the, there's that's the difference. You can't really improve animal models. You can't make them human relevant, but you can continue to refine and improve these other methods that are based on human tissues. Right. And those other methods are also far more ethical. And so that's just in every single way, it seems like it makes the most amount of sense and we need to move towards that. What do you think are some of the barriers to adopting these new methods if we feel like we have the seeds or in many cases emerging technologies already, do you think that people are hesitant to, to switch over because it's new and that's kind of the main barrier? Or is, is there something else that's potentially going to slow down adoption? There are several things that are barriers. So one is, yes, what you said is that it's new, relatively new, these new techniques. So many people are not familiar with them. So that's one of the things that we are going to be doing at CCS, at Center for Contemporary Sciences, is help get these technologies into the hands of researchers who, be, who can gain experience in using these tools and become more confident in using these tools. That's key. Another barrier is the there's a, a kind of an entrenched culture that still sees animal testing for God knows why, but sees animal testing as the default gold standard. Despite how many failures we've seen, it's just, it's, it's entrenched, that idea that animal testing is entrenched. So for example, I was talking with one innovator who created a heart model, um, human organ uh, heart, a mini heart, basically. Wow. And he has applied for funding from National Institutes of Health. And what they keep coming back to him is, why aren't you just doing animal testing instead? And so it's, it's and this is one of the things we've been hearing again and again, is that the funders of biomedical research still prioritize animal testing. So it, there's a lack of funding going into these new technologies. And that's the other thing that we want to do at CCS is help drive a change in the funding paradigm so that more funding is going towards these new technologies. So that's why we're especially going to be working in fostering the next generation of scientists, uh, the, the new scientists, emerging scientists to move into this field. And I think we have a real a real way of, of making a change here because most, you know, you, you think of high school students and college students, they're growing up in a world where we are thinking about the larger issues of what we're doing. They're more concerned about our impact on the world, our planet and on animals. So they're more aware of a lot of these issues, including the animal suffering involved with animal testing. And they just are more excited about moving into a field that's new, that's fresh, that's going to be the future. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, that's that's the other, I would say, a third prong of what how we're trying to overcome the barrier. Wow, that's that's very important. And so it sounds like, like with anything, you know, innovators come up against a very entrenched status quo, and it doesn't matter sometimes, you know, how much logic there is to changing the system. If people have done it a certain way for a long time, it just acquires authority by virtue of how long it's been done. So it's it's definitely an uphill battle in many ways, but it seems inevitable to me that organs on a chip and the, the sorts of technologies that you're describing are the future. 
purely because things do have to change if we want to actually make progress. You know, if, if humans want to get better results, if we want to actually release pharmaceuticals that, you know, have a better success rate, it seems like we will need to move in that direction. So what are some of the, I mean, you mentioned organs on a chip, but I think for many of our listeners, they may not necessarily know how to put that into context unless they're in research. Could you describe that in more um, layman's terms, like how that's, how that comes about? Yeah, and, and I will try my best. An organ on a chip is basically you're distilling an organ to its micro components. So for example, a lung has been is, um, distilled down to its micro components onto a chip. And it's called a microfluidic chip because you will have like a, a fluid system that works like a circulatory system. So it does a lot of the other functions that keep these cells alive, for example, and functioning. And so uh, a lung on a chip can actually breathe like a human lung. Wow. And when you think about it, everything that happens in our bodies, um, whether we're talking about disease progression, whether we're talking about a drug effectiveness or the adverse events of a drug, everything happens at that micro level anyway. So the benefit of having these types of systems is that you can really hone in on specific biological processes and really study them in detail and really study how a drug might affect that biological process that gives you a, a, a larger indication of how that drug might affect an entire or an, an entire organism, an entire human, for example. So it's, it's a way of really um, getting into some fine-tuning, detailed information that you would not be able to do otherwise. Wow, that's very interesting. Um, are there any other advanced research techniques or innovative research techniques that come to mind um, that your organization is excited about? Um, yeah, so the the human organs in the lab, that's one thing. The um, 3D cell cultures and human organs on a chip is one type of 3D cell culture. There's also big data um, now that's really starting to gain more traction. We have a lot of human data out there. Mm -hmm. And no, you know, but we need to put it together and we have a lot of information that we can put together. And with that data, um, drug companies, for example, and they are doing this to some degree, but they can look at a compound and look at its structure and try to determine whether or not it will have the impact that it's needed at the particular biological process that it's targeting, for example. And um, there's so much other human data that allows us to predict, you know, the effectiveness of a compound or the safety of a compound. So these are these are some of the technologies that are we're really excited. And the thing is, is that there's probably, you know, who knows what's next, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I think 15 years ago, human organs on a chip wasn't even dreamed of, or maybe it was by a few people. But now we hear about it and, and it's out there. So who knows what the next big innovation will be? But what's really key is that this innovation isn't going to happen unless the funding is going towards it. And this is where, as you know, as public can have a role because mm -hmm. but we have a role in voicing our concerns to Congress and demanding that they put kind of some, put some pressure really mm -hmm. on the National Institutes of Health and other health agencies to level the playing field of nothing else, to give more money towards these testing methods, these new testing methods than they currently are doing. That makes total sense. 
So it seems like there's a lot of opportunity that just isn't being capitalized on yet. And, you know, it's something that we all as citizens can have a role in sort of increasing the likelihood that researchers who are doing this innovative work can actually um, have the funding to do it, continue to do it. So how would you recommend, I mean, do you think that, how would, how would you recommend that people support your organization, for example? Well, um, we are always looking for partners to collaborate with. So we are looking for more innovators, companies um, that are creating these technologies or academic centers or governmental programs. We're looking for investors to who are interested in investing in these companies. We're creating a program to connect investors with the, the uh, centers and institutes that are creating these technologies. We will be looking to um, change policy over time, uh, as I mentioned, to because the National Institutes of Health and many of these other health agencies are incredibly slow to change. So one of the ways to change is to exert some pressure through Congress, you know, um, to start changing their their funding process. So we're looking for partners where we're looking for people to help us with these efforts or connect with us and collaborate with us. We, um, of course, we're always looking for money. <laughs> we're a nonprofit organization, so we're always looking for funding. We really want to build our scientific team, our academic affairs team, and our policy, um, our policy team. Great. Just kind of going back to your earlier uh, thought about sort of how big data is going to contribute to, you know, better research. Do you think that precision medicine and genomics is like what you were referring to with that predominantly? To some degree. Okay. And um, I will say, you know, what, one of the great things about these new technologies is that it really allows us to move forward with personalized medicine. Yeah. So for example, someone can take, a researcher can take, let's say, uh, let's say you have um, a type of cancer mm -hmm. and a researcher can take your cancer cells grow it in the lab and look for ways to treat that cancer with drugs that are very specific. So it's very targeted towards your specific disease, right? Mm -hmm. Not anyone else's. Now we're not there yet where this is, has widespread therapeutic application because growing these cells in the lab still takes time. So we're not there yet, but that's, that's what the future is going to be is taking cells from an individual body and then using those cells to study how to best target that person's disease. That's personalized medicine, or that's one example of personalized medicine. And it's so, it's so, you know, crucial because as we see, you know, no human is another human. And this is why clinical trials have to have a diversity of people, mm -hmm. um, why we need to have people of different ages, different ethnicities genders and so on, because no one human can predict if a drug is going to be safe and effective in another human. That's why personalized medicine is going to be so key. And these new technologies are going to be drivers in personalized medicine. I couldn't agree more. And uh, I'm really excited for that, too, because as you said, I mean, a lot of the treatments that people are currently receiving are inadequate because they're just they're based on research that didn't have a sample that included people like them, you know, as, as part of it. Or, you know, I, I was just thinking I have, you know, I think that obviously you're much more in the know about all this, but I'm, I'm really excited to, you know, think about the impact that this would have on improving patient outcomes for things that 
ordinarily would have taken a very long time to treat, but now with the most precise and specific treatments possible could actually, you know, have fewer side effects and have better results for patients. It's, it's, it's really exciting. I think we're at the precipice of a, a real transformation in biomedical research. And yeah, there will always be holdouts, people who are entrenched in doing things the way that they've always been doing. But that's, that's going to die out over time. And we, we, we do believe that um, there is a growing consensus within the biomedical community. It's not the majority, but it's a growing consensus that the future of biomedical research is to be using these testing methods that are based on human biology and not using other animals. And you just, you know, you just think about, we've been using animals since, you know, God knows for centuries. And in what other field do we still use the same old technology again and again? Nothing. You know, we're, we're so wedded to using the, to using animals and it doesn't have to do with real scientific validity. It's, it's not, logical. And so that's going to be the real hard thing to disrupt, but it will be disrupted. And, um, you know, it's inevitable, we will be moving away from animal testing. Right. And it's kind of true what you're describing. I mean, there's pretty much no other field except for religion, where we look backwards to, you know, find truths and answers. It's actually pretty much, you know, every other field or domain is going to evolve. So it's, it's, it's yeah, you're, it's, it's such a great, great point you made. It's like trying to go up to the to Mars using the same technology we use back in the 1960s to, to, you know, get out into space in the first place. Right. We would never continue using that same tech or, you know, the same shuttles or, for example, we've moved on, we improve. But with with biomedical research, it's just we are still wedded, like you said, to the past. We just, you know, and that's that's like the excuse people bring up. Oh, but we've been doing animal research forever. That's that's not a reason to continue it whatsoever. If anything, that's suggesting that we do need to change then. If we're having such a high failure rate, that means that what we've been doing hasn't been working. Exactly. It's kind of, it's disconcerting that our society has changed in every other way. I mean, we've evolved in every other way, but then there's these, these certain things that just have stayed the same that really shouldn't. So that's, it's really important work that you're doing. And to take it one step further too, I mean, do you think that the emerging field of cellular agriculture, which for our listeners is, you know, the field of, of cell culturing, you know, uh, bioengineering meat and dairy products without animals is going to somehow like those efforts are going to somehow intersect with the efforts that are currently being made and developing alternative methods for animal testing. Absolutely. I think, um, a, I think a lot of that work actually came out of the biomedical research field. Um, oh, wow. So if we're, that. Very yeah, nice. so we're, you know, it's, it's, they, they're using the techniques that have been applied in the biomedical research field for growing cells and keeping cells alive and then growing organs out of those cells. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely been, um, the biomedical research field has definitely formed the agricultural space there. And, um, it's very possible that it's going to be the other way around as well as time goes on. Great. So I think that we're running out of time. This has been a really great conversation so far. I just wanted to give you a chance to touch upon anything that I didn't cover so far. And um, 
in case you'd like to add on anything else. I think, I think, you know, as, um, you know, as we, we see so many people right now going, um, kind of criticizing the whole process of science and people becoming less, um, less, uh, less, uh, confident in science grounded or not in some degrees and, and many just by based on fear, fear mongering, there's an, there's a need to really showcase what science can do and to really educate people about the possibilities that can come with good scientific processes. And so I think it's important to show what the science can do in the biomedical research field and to help bring people's confidence back up when it comes to, you know, their confidence in science. Right. And it's almost absurd to say that, you know, science being what it is, that it can solve so many global, um, you know, challenges, but that we, that it can't, you know, evolve beyond the current state of its own research and testing methods. So um, it would, that would seem to be a contradiction. And I think that what you're saying is great um, and that your organization is very, very needed and that you're doing great work. So... Yeah, thank you for the conversation. And if there's any, you know, materials or anything by organization that you'd like us to put on our website, we're happy to do that for you as well to kind of spread the word. We do have a very international audience, actually. We get questions from all over the world on our um, episodes. So hopefully. Oh, great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, you, you stated it even better than I did that last point. And uh, yes, I will, I will share you um, our website if you want to just let people know how to how to reach us okay great thank you so much Aisha okay thanks so much Mira thank you bye-bye bye Mira